Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. What happens when a musician from Belarus gets together with Appalachian folk musicians? It was just this epic, raucous event of feasting, drinking, singing, shouting, and growing to experience each other's traditions for the first time. And we'll talk with Afrolatchian writer Crystal Wilkinson, Kentucky's poet laureate. She has a new book called Perfect Black. A rural blackness and Appalachian blackness can also be a perfect blackness. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're listening back to a really fun episode we originally aired back in April. It begins with a bit of a mystery. I had gotten a package in the mail from our reporter, Zach Harold. He asked me not to open it up until we were recording. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and crack the seal. Open it up there. Okay. The heck? What is this? I'm seeing like... A bunch of like little, almost um, like marshmallow shaped items in a Ziploc bag, kind of white. Why don't Why don't you take one out of the bag and, and eat it and describe <laughs> to me the taste? Oh my god! Okay, it's a, first of all, it's just amazing. It's like soft and kind of buttery. I mean, it's lovely. What you're eating is what uh, folks call pull candy, uh, sometimes called cream pull candy or Kentucky pull candy. I did a little bit of research, and it seems like it started off in Kentucky around the turn of the 20th century. And I couldn't find out when, but at some point it made it to West Virginia, and it seems especially prevalent in Boone County, where I'm from. And it's as famous for that creamy, buttery taste as it is for being notoriously difficult to make. The recipe (laughs) has to be exact, and then it becomes this taffy, and you have to stretch it, and and it has to be at least 50 degrees or colder outside, so it doesn't set up too fast as you're stretching it. A a lot can go wrong. Yeah. Did anyone in your family or friends make it growing up? Well, my (laughs) brother-in-law, Alex, made it once. It's probably been about 10 years ago. He was about 17 at the time. I got to wanting some pool candy, and I Googled it, how to make it, and I was like, well, I think I can do this. Well, first of all, that was a dumb idea because it was not cold outside, which is like the biggest problem here. Well, that wasn't all. You're supposed <laughs> to have a hook to pull the taffy on. He didn't have a co- yeah. uh, He didn't have a hook. And you're supposed to have a smooth surface to work it on, like marble or something, like you see in candy shops. He didn't have that either. Uh, So he he came up with a workaround. (laughs) So I was like, well, mom and dad had the deep freezer. So I'll just open the deep freezer door and (laughs) that ought to be sufficient for the the cold. I took a metal baking sheet and froze it. And I started working the candy on that frozen cookie sheet. It started sticking to my wrists and it got... To the point where I could not get my hands out of it. And before I knew it, I had my hands stuck to this baking sheet walking around the house. <laughs> yeah, I have to apologize to you and the, the listeners at home. I was trying to get good tape, but, you know, it, it was all I could do to keep from laughing. Well, I tried to, I put it down on the ground and I put my feet on it and I was pulling on it. thought if I could get it free from the the cookie sheet that I probably got to the garage and find something to chisel it off with. Well, I couldn't even do that. So I was like, the only person I know get me out of this mess is my buddy down the road. So I'm thinking like, well, should I walk down to Jacob's? And I was like, there's oh, no... Oh, you were contemplating walking down the yeah, road? Yeah, but I, I, I couldn't turn the doorknob. <laughs> I like laid on my back... <laughs> I laid on my back and I was like, maybe I can turn the doorknob with my uh, with my oh, feet here. So <laughs> once you decide you can't open the door with your feet, you uh, 
like a trained seal I come up here and <laughs> dial the phone with my nose. Oh my god. You couldn't make this up. Oh no, you you couldn't. So then Jacob arrives. You really don't expect to if someone, you know, calls you and says, Hey, I need your help with something, you don't expect to walk in their house and see them adhered to a big <laughs> ball of candy. So he'd take a boiling water, throw it on there for a little bit, and then scrape it with a butter knife. And we did that one and one, probably about an hour. Finally got me free from it. Oh, God. Yeah, so once he's extricated from this mess, well, my, my father-in-law <laughs> c- comes home. Yeah, I came home from church, and there's the awfulest mess in this kitchen I've ever seen in my life. And I told Alex, I said, son, we better clean this up or your mother gets home. You're a dead man. You were gone, though, weren't you? I don't know where I was at. I thought I was here. You left, I thought I went to Jacob. You left as soon as I got here, and then I cleaned the mess up. Oh, okay. I like to never got off. I'm assuming the, the pulled candy in front of me is not what Alex made. No, as a matter of fact, um, that came from a, a fellow named Joe Parcell who lives in Winfield, West Virginia. He's a Boone County native, and he's a retired coal miner, and now he spends his days making pull candy. I stopped by Joe's house recently, and uh, he let me watch as, as he made a batch. When I showed up at Joe Parcell's house on a sunny Saturday morning in March, I found him in his backyard, fishing. His Winfield, West Virginia home sits right on the banks of the Canal River, and this day he was competing in a catfishing tournament. He had eight fishing rods in the water and was sitting on a little wooden deck waiting for him to move when I snuck up on him. I figured we'd make some small talk, maybe take in the view for a bit, but Joe was ready to get down to business. Well, uh, it's going to get too warm to make it after 12, so we need need to get in there. Joe is a master at making traditional pull candy, but he won't even attempt it unless the thermometer is below 50 degrees. He can usually make it from October through May, although toward the end of the season, he's getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning when it's still cool enough. He leads me into his kitchen where he has everything ready to go. He measures out a cup and a quarter of water using a digital scale to make sure it's exact. That goes into a cook pot with four cups of sugar, again measured on his trusty scale. Now, this is the last time you take a spoon to it. Now he measures out some evaporated milk, eight ounces, on the nose. He mixes in a pinch of baking soda. Even Joe's pinches are exact. He has a special pinch-sized measuring spoon. I've never seen a pinch measuring spoon. This was hard to find. Making pull candy requires this exacting eye for detail at every step in the process. And if it overcooks or undercooks by one notch on the thermometer, it's not a good batch. But Joe has done it so many times, he doesn't once look at a recipe. He's got all the steps down to this tightly choreographed dance with each step timed nearly to the second. What's the most you've ever made today? Fourteen. That's a personal record I made this year. My wife betted me I couldn't make 12 in one day. I made 14. Now, let me clear something up. He means 14 batches. At about 150 pieces of candy per batch, that is 2,100 pieces of candy in a single day. He didn't always have it down to a science like this. He's been making this candy for 36 years, but says he only mastered it in the last seven or eight. This isn't a recipe that you can just Google. You've got to learn it from someone else. Joe learned how to make pull candy from his first wife, who learned how to make it from her former school bus driver. He knew him. He drove her to school for three years. It's kind of a long story, but here's the gist. She ran into the bus driver years after she got out of school and asked about the candy. He said he was too old. His shoulders were too weak to make it anymore, but offered to teach her. For a long time, she would make the candy, and Joe would do the stretching until they split up. So Joe made a bargain with her. She come out every other Wednesday and see the kids and dogs. And I said, next time you come out see the kids and dogs, I said, won't you uh, tell me what to have and I'll buy the ingredients and teach me how to make that candy and I'll give you half of it. And she did. And as far as I know, that's the last she's ever had of it. <laughs> While we've been talking, Joe has been keeping his eye on that thermometer. Okay, it's there. He adds his milk, baking soda, butter patties, then brings the pot back up to a boil. The air fills with the sweet, 
creamy smell. He says this is the point that usually attracts visitors to the kitchen. My, my wife, she'll say, uh, how you doing, candy man? <laughs> she knows I'm making it just from the smell. He's still keeping an eye on that thermometer. But at this stage, he almost doesn't need it. He'll know when it's ready by the color, a light caramel. You see, it's real light. I know that that's too light, that it has to go higher. Okay, now it's there. He takes the pot off the stove and pours the goopy candy into a pan that's floating in a sink full of ice water. You see how my pan's dipping there? It, uh, it's never sunk on me. I hope it don't today. It's now that Joe touches the candy for the first time. Even though it's still super hot, he takes his fingertips and pulls the edges into the middle. This keeps the edges from cooling and crystallizing before the rest of the candy. This is also when things can start to go wrong. You'll recall this is where my brother-in-law, Alex, got into trouble. When the whole thing's sticking and you've got another run cooking, it, uh, sometimes you can panic. Now Joe adds a teaspoon of vanilla and works it into the candy. And when it cools enough to where you can handle it, that's when you take it out and stretch it. If you take it too soon, it'll burn you. If you take it too late, it's harder to pull. Okay, we are ready. At this point, the candy looks like a big ball of silly putty. We head downstairs and out a set of French doors to his hook. He's been using the same one for about 20 years. It's just a long nail bent into a U-shape and mounted on a post. Joe takes the candy from the pan, stretches it into a long rope, then he loops it over the hook. He pulls both sides down and brings them together in the middle. Then he stretches the rope again and back over the hook. He repeats the same motion over and over. I make this look easy, but it's not. I don't think it looks easy. <laughs> I tell people jokingly, uh, when you're stretching it here, you stretch it to the point of exhaustion, then three more pulls. This is another moment of truth in the pull candy process. And as you stretch it, it stretches harder. That's a sign that you turn lighter and stretches harder is two good signs. It's good and smooth. It's a good run today. Sometimes you can see a little gritty and uh, it'll all the time stretch out of it, but this is a good run. The longer Joe goes, the more difficult the stretching gets. You can hear it in his breathing, and you can see it in the way his muscles strain against the candy. I was doing so fast the other day, my smartwatch asked me, was I in a pool swimming? He stretches until he's exhausted, and then gives it three more pulls. He salvages what he can off the hook, and then it's back through the French doors to a downstairs countertop. He stretches the hardening candy into a long rope. He grabs a pair of tin snips and begins to cut. Grab a piece there and eat it. The candy is warm and soft. It tastes like butter and vanilla, but I can also feel it starting to set up and pull on my teeth. I also notice the cutting is getting more difficult for Joe. The candy is becoming rock hard. Ta-da. Once you make it, it's taffy. In about 24 to 48 hours, it will turn to cream. Now he puts the candy into bags, ready for the freezer. He freezes it in taffy form, but once it thaws, it takes on that melt-in-your-mouth texture that it's known for. I've got a freezer full. I actually got two freezers full. For years, Joe just gave the candy away. He decided to start selling it a few years ago, after he retired from the coal mines. Right now, he's just a wholesaler. He sells to one guy who flips it on Facebook Marketplace, and you can also find Joe's candy at Chum's Hot Dogs in Marmette, West Virginia, home of the famous Yellow Slaw. But just like his time in the mines, he knows this career can't go on forever. I'm still got good at upper body strength for stretching, but I do have arthritis in my hand. I'm just not the little boy I used to be. He does want to pass the recipe along, but so far hasn't had much luck. I have trained eight people to make this in the 35 years, 36 years I've made it. Out of them eight people that I've trained, zero make it. Why is that? Just because it's too hard. I've volunteered for people to come down and make it. I've made some videotapes and sent it to people. And uh, so far, 
I do want to, I've got two nephews I'm wanting to teach to make it. And uh, I invited them down today for this, for the, I demonstrated all at one time and they had other things to do. Still, Joe's not planning on stopping anytime soon. Actually, he's looking to expand his market. He's thinking of taking the candy to the flea market in Milton, West Virginia. His current wife, Becky, is researching how to get him into Tamarack in Beckley. And his son sells honey at the sweet shop on Snowshoe Mountain, so Joe's hoping to get in there next season. He's even done a little rebranding. Called it Joe Candy for years, but... Recently, he got some labels printed, and he's reworked the name a little bit. Uh, Parcells Old Fashioned Poly Candy is my official name of it. Thought maybe that's just a little more catchy. But you know what they say. Joe Candy, by any other name, tastes just as sweet. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Winfield, West Virginia. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, cover it in chocolate and a miracle or two? The Candyman. Zach's story is a part of our Inside Appalachia Folkways reporting project. You can find more from our Folkways reporters on our website, wvpublic.org. Who can take a rainbow, wrap it in a sigh, soak it in the sun and make a strawberry lemon pie? The Candyman. The Candyman. The Candyman can. Kentucky has a new poet laureate. Crystal Wilkinson is the first black woman to have this title in the state. She's an associate professor of English at the University of Kentucky. And over her career, Wilkinson has focused a lot of her writing on black women and their experiences in Appalachia. Wilkinson grew up in Indian Creek in Casey County, and I asked her to start by reading a poem. She says it's an ode to tobacco and her grandfather. Oh, tobacco, you are the warm burnt sienna of my grandfather's skin, soft like ripe leather. I cannot see you any other way but as a farmer's finest crop. You are a Kentucky tiller's livelihood. You were school clothes in August, the turkey at Thanksgiving, Christmas with all the trimmings. I close my eyes, see you tall, stately green, lined up in rows, see sweat seeping through granddaddy's shirt as he fathered you first. You were protected by him, sometimes even more than any other thing that rooted in our earth. Just like family, you were coddled, cuddled, coaxed into making him proud. Spread out for miles, you were the only pretty thing he knew. When I think of you at the edge of winter, I see you brown, wrinkled, just like granddaddy's skin. A 10-year-old me plays in the shadows of the stripping room. The wood stove burns. Calloused hands twist through the length of your leaves. Granddaddy smiles, nods at me when he thinks I'm not looking. And you, you are pretty and braided, lined up in rows like a room full of brown girls with skirts hooped out for dancing. Crystal, that's beautiful. I, the imagery that that provokes is incredible. Thank you. Did you write most of these poems in the past year, or has it been accumulation of over many years? Um, some of them are fairly new poems. In most ways, this is a book of collected poems, some of them going back for um, a decade or more. But when I looked at the themes, I realized that the same themes that haunt me now are themes that have haunted my writing for a while. And when you say things that haunt you now, can you expand on that? Well, you know, issues of girlhood, particularly black girlhood, racism, political awareness, and and how you gain those things as a young girl growing up in a rural area, how those sort of sociopolitical issues affect a rural person and how they affect uh, an Appalachian person perhaps differently than they would an urban person. It's been a really crazy past year. I mean, obviously we've had the pandemic and um, quite the presidential election, but our country's had almost this reckoning with social justice issues. I mean, everything from Black Lives Matter and police brutality, 
but then also more recently Asian American hate crimes. Um, I'm wondering what what have been your reflections from this past year? I mean, I think it's been a difficult year, but I like to dwell on hope. And my my hope is that, particularly when you think about what I see as a rising Asian movement that is is parallel to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and I hope that they become the same movement, that collectively we can make change. I, I feel like our collective backs are against the wall and it has to end in change. Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting how you're saying that it becomes like a collective movement and that kind of almost almost one. Right. I mean, I think injustice, um, I can almost start crying when I'm talking about it, but, but this sort of injustice that we're seeing and the lives that are continuing to be lost and people being beat up on the streets um, just for being of Asian descent, this all has to stop in some ways and we all have to be a part of stopping it and speaking out. And again, I, I, mean, I see that marching in the streets and holding government accountable, holding the people who are doing this violence accountable, but also holding our individual selves accountable and our family members, even when no one's watching, um, sort of stopping people in their tracks when they say something disparaging about another race or ethnicity is the way that we have to combat it. I think it has to both happen on a national level and it also has to be simultaneously happening on an individual uh, level to uh, be able to evoke change. Um, I wanted to rewind really quick. Can you tell me a little more about your granddaddy? I th- I just love the imagery that came from that poem. Yeah, you know, I think as a, a rural man, irregardless of race, my grandfather, his love was quiet. He was really concerned about providing for his family. We all knew that he loved us, but his main thing was the crops and the uh, making sure that you know his daily chores were done. I, I think I do remember him saying that he he loved me, but not without provocation, not without me saying "I love you, Granddaddy," and then he would say "I love you too," you know, <laughs> sort of sternly. Uh, but I think that was the generation that he came from. But I remember being sort of taken aback as a child when I would go with him out into the fields, how tenderly he treated, how he doted on his crops. You know, that was one of my, I guess, as an early writer, uh, I made these sort of observations. And that was one that stuck with me. Like, he really loves this land. And I remember thinking, does he love me the same way? And so then I began to look for signs that weren't verbal or that weren't necessary physical signs of affection toward me. And so I think that thought stayed with me all of these years. And uh, particularly these early poems in the first section are sort of an ode to my grandparents. I was raised by my grandparents and uh, and I was reminded of all of that during this pandemic, you know, living in the city now and being a professor and being sort of tied to Zoom, I got a little stir crazy. And one of the ways that these poems began to bubble up was I started ordering seed last year and I got out there and dug around in the dirt and planted tomatoes and and peppers and um, sort of gave myself sort of an everyday routine in that way when we were sort of on lockdown. Of course, it took me right back to my childhood and remembering those things that I did when I lived back back home in the hills and the work that my grandparents did daily and how important it is and, and was to have your hands in in the dirt for solace, for nutrition and all those other things, too. But, but there's a sort of a spiritual connection, I think that I was able to return to. And so there's some poems in in here about that as well. Do you think you will have a garden again this year? Yes, I 
<laughs> I, um, <laughs> you know, I feel, I said my ancestors would be ashamed of me because I was so bad at it. Like I went out there with an <laughs> attitude, like I know how to do this. This is part of my upbringing, part of my muscle memory. Of course, I know how to plant tomatoes. This, this will be great. And my tomatoes were horrible looking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my squash died. It was just a mess. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to do it again. Hopefully redeem myself as a, as a woman of the hills. And, and, uh, hopefully I haven't gotten outside my raisin and remember, <laughs> remember I can do better this time. Can you tell me a little bit about the title Perfect Black? How did how did you come to that? Well, it's part of one of the poems. There's a poem called um Fat and Black and Perfect. So that's about body positivity, but I started thinking about this idea of blackness. So it becomes a part of the book as well as far as an overall theme because I think this idea of a monolith of black people um, so in a way, this book is sort of dispelling these sort of stereotypes about blackness. I think many people think of of blackness as being a, a rural phenomenon. So I think that so many of us who are are from the mountains, from Appalachia, are sort of dismissed or or sort of uh, invisible to mainstream society they don't really think that we're here so the title also sort of leans into that idea that a rural blackness and appalachian blackness can also be a perfect blackness there is no one way to be uh, black in america yeah i think it's very important and another thing that you mentioned was the poem about body positivity and I I think that's such an important topic and it's something that a lot of people and especially young people really struggle with. Um, so I just, I think that's really cool that you touched on that. Is there any chance you'd be willing to read a little bit of one of the body or body positivity poems? I'll read this one. This one is called Black Body. My black body is a boulder a stop sign. Sometimes I think my body is graceful, a song of freedom. Sometimes I think it is something that every eye casts away. I must concentrate if I want to fit into small spaces, slip into the eye of America's needle. Twice last week, I went without eating, filling up on self-loathing and discontent only to give in to a slice of pound cake and a bowl of ice cream. To stay awake, I drink a glass of tea and watch the flawed reality of television housewives. Before bed, I stretch myself out along the couch and place my feet in my husband's lap. I can't stop thinking about the little black girl in the back of Flando Castile's car. Mommy, please stop screaming so they won't shoot at you. At four years old, she saw her mother's unarmed boyfriend shot, bleeding, dead on the front seat. I can keep you safe, she tells her mother. My body embarrasses the famous white woman at the writing conference as if my fat will rub off on her if she gets too close. When I'm sick, I want buttered sweet rice and a tender hand moving in circles on my back. Yesterday, I ate meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and green beans at the Cracker Barrel in Tennessee. The white righteous called me baby doll. Once, I remember feeling the quickening of babies in my womb, four tiny hands pressing against my navel, Four tiny feet pressing against my ribs. Wow. Crystal, the way you're able to touch on your your childhood memories and then your your current day experiences and then uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, it's I didn't expect you to be able to touch on all of those in, within one body positivity poem. I I mean, 
remarkable. Thank you so much. Well, Crystal, uh, anything else you want to share or that you're looking forward to this summer? I just had my second shot. And so I'm looking forward to hugging my children. I'm looking forward to getting out of the house a little bit more and having at least some normalcy to my life. And, And that's what I sort of hope for, for everybody else to be able to get to that. And maybe we can get some distance from this pandemic. So I'm I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to that. And better tomatoes. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I, I'm going to call <laughs> on my ancestors and hopefully uh, <laughs> they'll remind me of who I really am. That was Crystal Wilkinson. This year, she was named Kentucky's Poet Laureate. She's the author of two collections of short stories and one novel. Her first collection of poems, Perfect Black, was released this month. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Eric Ayer won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on how pharmaceutical companies shipped millions of pain pills into small towns in West Virginia. We'll talk with Ayer about his book, Death in Mudlick. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, substance use disorder was one of the biggest public health crises in our country. And it still is. The isolation that came with the pandemic may have made things worse, but many believe that actions by pharmaceutical companies created the problem. Reporter Eric Ayer won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting into the issue. He compiled his reporting into a book called Death in Mudlick, a coal country fight against the drug companies that delivered the opioid epidemic. It's now available in paperback, but last March, Ayer spoke with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas about his reporting and the future of the epidemic's impact here in Appalachia. You won a Pulitzer Prize for your for your work investigating, uh, and, and you've written, I'm sure there's some way to find out how many stories you've written, but I doubt you even know how many exact individual stories you've written. Um, how did it all start for you? Basically, it started with me because I was covering the state house and the legislature, and one of my duties was to cover the attorney general's office and the attorney general's race. And Patrick Morrissey won the race, and then we got a tip that his wife worked for one of these distributors that distributes opioids and other drugs called Cardinal Health, and that she was the, the, the biggest lobbyist for Cardinal Health. And then we found out that Cardinal Health had donated to Patrick Morrissey's, had helped donate for his inaugural party. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of just snowballed from there. But it started with this, you know, on the ground beat reporting in the state house. Was there any point that you ever just wanted to quit that you, you figured this isn't going to go any further and, and I'm never going to be able to, to get the numbers I need or the information I need? I mean, you always have those moments, but you you just keep you just keep reporting the hell out of the story. You know, I I was under a lot of pressure at one point while we were uh, pursuing all this. Uh, Patrick Morrissey filed a uh, or, or launched an investigation of of my employer, the Gazette Mail, at the time. He requested he subpoenaed all of our financial records. He subpoenaed our um, this was in 2015 when we merged with the, the mail after the Charleston Gazette and the Daily Mail. And he subpoenaed the financial personnel records. So that really took our, our, our owners and management aback. Um, They're concerned about, you know, this aggressive reporting. But at the end of the day, they let me continue and, and we uh, continued and we won in the end. <laughs> 
you quote uh, uh, Ned Chilton uh, in the book and and uh, several of the reviews, both in New Yorker and the New York Times have have mentioned Ned Chilton and the, and his sustained outrage ethic. Um, uh, he, you know, he very strongly believed in crusading journalism. I, I'm sure he would be uh, pleased with your work, um, but can it be sustained? Can, can, can the Gazette Mail, uh, other reporters pick up where you've, you've left off? I think it's real tough. I mean, this environment has shown how tough it is on newspapers. Um, you know, we've laid off uh, upwards of three people the week before last, and then another two the previous month, and more cuts are, are, are coming. This is not just the Gazette Mail. This is happening all over the yeah, country. Yeah. Is the public maintaining its level of sustained outrage over the opioid crisis or, or the other injustices? Are, are we paying attention? Well, I think the opioid crisis, and, and rightfully so, probably has taken a back seat, which is something I worry about. There's 3,000 plus cases that have been filed related to opioid manufacturers and distributors with cities and counties trying to recoup some of the, their, their expenses and their losses that have, they've incurred because of the opioid crisis. But there was, a, there was a conference call with investment bankers and The Intercept reported that they were talking with the investment bankers about how they could, they were going to leverage the coronavirus outbreak to duck and dodge the responsibility for the opioid crisis. You revealed in the book your diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Um, how did that influence your work? Yeah, it gave me a new um, perspective. Um, you know, I had a phrase, you got to get done what you got to get done when you can do it. Um, in terms of the impact for my work, it's my, my right hand has a tremor, so it's very difficult to type with my right hand. I need to get some some software or something, some speech to text software, but I'm, I've been kind of stubborn about making that switch. So now I'm maneuvering everything um, with my left hand primarily. You know, on the on the flip side, it, it's, it's, it's been a blessing in terms of meeting new friends. That's pretty much all of my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? A lot of these people who are in recovery, they really, really look forward to this group therapy model where they have 12 to 15 people, people that I've interviewed who are in recovery say that that's the best part of the whole process is getting together with groups of people. Now, I guess maybe they can do it on Zoom or something or telemedicine, but I don't think it's the same. But then again, in, in, in Eric, in these rural areas, there's what well, 25% of people don't have high-speed broadband. They might not be able to do that. This isolation, more anxiety, um, more loneliness. I don't think that that spells well for the future, you know, for, for that's not a recipe for um, recovery from opioid use disorder. That's that's the exact opposite of it. And uh, the opposite, you know, they say the opposite of, of uh, addiction is connection and we're not getting much connection now. That was Eric Ayer, author of the book Death in Mudlick, a coal country fight against the drug companies that delivered the opioid epidemic. The book is now available in paperback. Ayer was formerly a reporter with the Charleston Gazette Mail, but now he's one of a group of journalists who formed a digital news site called Mountain State Spotlight. So last year, West Virginia's New River Gorge National River became the New River Gorge National Park. And it's the 63rd in the nation, but the first in West Virginia. And it's just a one word change. But those who fought for the new designation say it could make all the difference for the local tourism economy. So reporter Duncan Slade looked at two other national parks one of the youngest and one of the oldest, and he was hoping to find out what the future could look like for the new River Gorge. Three years ago, the Indiana Dunes was in the exact same position as West Virginia's New River Gorge. Congress had just approved a new designation for its 15 miles of ecologically diverse beaches along Lake Michigan. Instead of a national lakeshore, it was to be a national park. Afterward, visitation increased by 28%. Pat Micah has volunteered at the Parks Visitor Center for the last 16 years. It's just that you meet the most amazing people there. 
It wasn't just more visitors. She says there was also a new type of guest. Instead of locals or day trippers from Chicago, she's seeing more first-time visitors from farther away. We got some people who just, that's what they do is, is see every national park in the country. At the visitor center, almost twice as many people walked through the doors that summer, and the pandemic has only added to the park's popularity. Its beaches stayed open while those nearby shut down. At one point, it was so busy the police were brought in for crowd control. The lakeshore is right off the highway, an easy day trip from Indianapolis or Chicago. Lisa Woodrich owns a cafe in the nearby town of Chesterton. She says business is up, and the new visitors are staying longer, too. I think that... Now, with this being a destination, our our customers are not just stopping here because they're getting gas and coffee. <laughs> they're stopping here because they're staying here because it's a national park. She's lived here for 30 years and says there are some inconveniences to suddenly having a national park in your backyard. We got our RV and I tried to book a camping spot. and. We couldn't get a spot for three months. Like, there was nothing. There was nothing. But overall, she says the positives of the name change far outweigh the negatives. I think it's always nice to be part of someone's vacation. But I think now we're part of people's bucket lists. While Indiana Dunes is still a young national park, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park has been a vacation destination for over 80 years. Dedicated in 1940, it's been the most visited national park every year since the end of World War II. A third of the U.S. population is within a day's drive, and several nearby towns form a sort of tourist mecca, home to Dollywood and many other attractions. Vicki King grew up in nearby Pigeon Forge. You know what, my grandparents were at the dedication when Franklin Roosevelt, you know, we've got pictures from that dedication ceremony. She got her first job at Hee Haw Village, a roadside tourist attraction with a comedy show. And I was an usherette on Saturday nights because I was still in grade school. Since then, she's worked almost every kind of tourism job you can think of. Retail, a wedding chapel, and now vacation rentals. She remembers when the tourism economy wasn't enough to sustain her family year-round. When I was growing up and my mom worked in hospitality, you know, she was laid off for three to four months during the winter and then brought back to work. But over the years, those seasonal jobs have become more secure. You don't really see layoffs anymore. It's almost a thing of the past, which is amazing. Park visitors pump over a billion dollars into the area's economy each year. Leon Downey has been the tourism director in Pigeon Forge for three decades. He says the national park anchors the tourism industry. It's such a big deal that even his eye doctor has a stake in it. The first question he asked me is not how are your eyes or you have any problem with your eyes. He said, Leon, what kind of a tourism season are we going to have this year? A successful season means more money for locals to spend on glasses. Right now, Leon says the relationship between the town and the national park is strong, but it took time to get there. Over the last 20 years, the park and nearby towns have worked together to promote the whole region. Uh, our guests don't see us usually individually as Pigeon Forge or Gatlinburg or Sevierville. When we asked them where they went on vacation, they went to the Smoky Mountains. Now, what does all this mean for West Virginia's new national park? The New River Gorge will likely see more visitors this summer and beyond. Many of them will be first-timers curious about the new park. The crowds will more than likely mean extra wear and tear on the roads and trails. But if park infrastructure meets the demand and if money is invested to promote the park, New visitors will become repeat visitors. The new name could spark a robust tourism economy, providing good jobs for the generations to come. In 20 years, instead of people saying, our family goes to the Smokies every summer, people could be saying, our family goes to the New River Gorge. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Duncan Slade. There are several Appalachian folk songs that have been used in protest, like this one by Florence Reese, a coal miner's wife. Well, which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral air. You'll either 
A new cross-continental connection between Slavic and Appalachian folk musicians has given the form a unique flavor. A Hundred Days in Appalachia's Chad Rich brings us a story about how Slavalacha was born and how this musical collaboration lent its voice to an uprising halfway around the world from its roots in Athens, Ohio. Nadzia Ilkovich was working toward her master's in communication at Ohio University in 2019. By chance, my friend Sergei, he was in Chicago, and I managed through Ohio University Fulbright to organize a concert. Ilkovich is referring to fellow Belarusian Serhai Dohoshu. He's a traditional and folk musician and activist from the Eastern European country. Dohoshu was showcasing his country's culture on a tour of the states. Serhii came to Athens and presented Belarusian traditional like folk music and flutes and hurdy-gurdy and instruments and singing traditions. Brett Hill, frontman for the Appalachian folk quartet Hill Spirits, was there. This is Serhei's life work. At this point, he had been going across Belarus for about five years, just collecting Belarusian traditional folk material, both dances, songs, instrumentation. It blew our minds. We asked him if he wanted to jam the next night. Unfortunately enough, he did want to jam, and the next night, Slavolacha was born. It was just this epic, raucous event of feasting, drinking, singing, shouting, and growing to experience each other's traditions for the first time, because this was the first time I think Serhei had ever even heard of Appalachian music. jammed for seven hours in a row and then <laughs> someone said Slava Lacha. That was kind of collaboration that I wanted to continue. Ilkovich quickly added Ukrainian traditional musician Marichka Chichkova to the lineup. Ukraine and Belarus are two of the 13 Slavic countries. Slavs are Eastern European people who speak one of many Slavic languages. The etymology of Slavolacha comes from a combination of the words Slav and Appalachia. So I'm originally from Belarus. I want Belarusian music, traditional music, to be much more popular. And then I spent a lot of time in Lviv, Ukraine. Ukrainian traditional music is like thriving. And for me, it was the example how traditional music should be developed. And then I spent three years in Appalachia, this also uncovered region, which also no one knows about Appalachian music. It's like three places that uh, people from all over the world have no idea. (laughs) So, and I want to mix that. (laughs) So in January 2020, two months before worldwide COVID-driven lockdowns, Hill and Hill Spirit's bandmate, Ben Stewart, flew overseas to play music with the full Slavolacha lineup for the first time. They played in both Belarus and Ukraine. And they were just enamored with it, absolutely loved it. So there's like this Georgian men's choir. Ben specifically was able to teach them some moonshine songs. God bless that moonshiner, how I wish he was mine. Oh, and they just love that stuff. Hills says he witnessed Ukrainian music as a part of everyday culture there. And he also saw threats to traditional Belarusian music. That country has been under the thumb of Soviet-friendly dictator Alexander Lukashenko for over two and a half decades. After the Americans returned home, the world started locking down. And in August, a revolution broke out in Belarus against what people believed was a rigged election by Lukashenko. Terrible situation there. That causes Slavolacha to need to band together and put out a resistance piece. Music as a form of resistance is deeply rooted in Appalachia, going back to the days of coal mining and company towns. We utilized a song that I have been singing since I was a little boy called Which Side Are You On, which I learned from Pete Seeger. 
Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They recorded each piece remotely and mixed the song by sending tracks back and forth through the internet. Ilkovich's husband is a filmmaker, and he edited a music video from footage of the musicians captured in all three countries, along with scenes of social unrest in Belarus. Despite an ongoing pandemic and the Belarusian revolution, Hill says that he and his American bandmate will return to Eastern Europe in 2021 to continue to break ground with Slavolacha. This point of Slavolacha is for us to band together, make super dope music that has never been, as far as we can tell, really made before by the uh, infusion of these three different traditions, and also help support each other's not only musical projects overseas, but uh, help support each other's folk traditions into a bright and shining future. The collaboration appears to be in good hands under Ilkovich's stewardship. So I'm uh, keeping everybody together. So I'm managing, <laughs> producing and watering Slavolasha lands <laughs> for them to grow. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Chad Rich. Chad's story comes to us from the online news site, 100 Days in Appalachia. Read more at 100daysinappalachia.com. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was by Florence Reese, West Swing, Dinosaur Burps, and Slavolacha. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.